going to enter the position of receiving the benediction. Isn't this nice? Receive that blessing. Receive it. And I believe, too, you've got to do something with that blessing. So how about you just wash it right over yourself? Or get creative with it, you know? Maybe give yourself a good bath in it. Yeah, really wash yourself in it. Wash yourself in that blessing. When I saw it this week, I said, no, you can't use that one. But they, they don't listen to me. Here's the second thing. If you weren't laughing, it probably means you're old. So just own it. Own that. Take it in. Let it settle. You're okay. Yeah. Oh, we'll talk a little bit about that later at the end. Sort that out. Welcome to Union Chapel. We're so thrilled you're here. We've been talking about God and the human body we're asking the question, what was God's original intent and design for our bodies and relationships? What's his purpose? And we've spent several weeks now talking about this, and today we want to talk about the connection that we have with Jesus and his body. Jesus was, was incarnated. He took a body when he came to the world. When he was raised from the dead, he took again his body. And so we have identification with him, and I hope we can make some uh, sense out of it today. So I've chosen as our reference from the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. I'm going to read selected verses from chapters 19 and 21. And our custom is to ask you to stand to hear God's word so as you're able. Thank you for doing that. Here's chapter 19 and verse 6. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. Now, turn over to chapter 21. I'll begin at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And may God inspire us today through his word. You may be seated. Thanks so much. A couple of years ago, a political commercial was produced, and it was... Uh, at the occasion of a gay pride event, and there was a large screen set up depicting an x-ray machine. And so if you're out in the audience and you're looking at this big screen, you saw only x-ray figures of two individuals. So you could only see the, the skeletal portion of the two figurines behind the screen, uh, presumably being x-rayed. And so they walked to each other, they warmly embraced, and then they romantically kissed. 
Then the two images walked to the edge of the screen and then out in front of the screen where you could see that the first couple were two women. And then you saw another couple do the same and they walk, as they walked out, it was two men. Then there was a person of darker skin pigmentation and lighter skin pigmentation and they came out. Then there was an older couple and then there, there was a, one of the persons was handicapped and they came out. So at the end of it, here's what the caption read. Love knows no biases. Love knows no disabilities. Love knows no genders. No biases, no disabilities, no genders. Now let me, let me just say that those three statements are profoundly Christian because God's love is unconditional. Knows no biases, disabilities, or genders, of course. God loves everybody unconditionally. And so we know that. But there are two unstated assumptions in this commercial. And they are, first, love must be concluded with some kind of act of intimacy or sexual act. Love and sex are always connected. And the second statement you get from this uh, unstated assumption is the amazing disembodiment of love from the physical, from the human body. So, so, so when, when love occurs, it doesn't have to be associated with the body in any way. And it's an interesting message. So we're reminded, again, of the need to understand our bodies in the light of greater theological truths. So what, what is God's original idea? What's his original design and purpose for the human body? Uh, we know, and we've been studying this now for a number of weeks, that God has given us design and purpose in our bodies for both covenantal and sacramental use. God calls us into relationships not of convenience or just another commodity in the consumer market, but as members of a family in covenant. God calls us to live in our bodies honorably and holy, serving our bodies for sacred uses and as a means of grace. And so there is higher purpose and higher value in the use of our bodies. Christians today, I'm concerned, in our culture are perceived in one of two ways. One way that Christians are perceived are as angry and resentful and against certain behaviors and lifestyles. And so certain Christians are known for that. Then there's another segment of Christians who are more progressive in the church who simply embrace whatever comes down the cultural pike, suggesting the Bible approves of anyone, no matter their choices or their lifestyle. And I just want to submit to you that the motivation for this whole series is that the current culture does not need the church to be either angry or accommodating. There must be a better way. There must be a, a, a more nuanced, a more balanced, a more holistic, more beautiful, more compelling, more joyful way forward for the church in its posture in the question of marriage and sex and gender and relationships. So I want to just unpack today some, some more of what we can find in the scripture with regard to what God originally intended and designed for our bodies. You have on your outline a few points. Here's the first one. The human body has both physical and spiritual meaning. Physical and spiritual. Now, of course, our bodies have practical physical functions in the world. We're made male and female with practical functions of union, self-sacrifice, self-giving in our partnership and relationship and covenant, uh, covenant faithfulness in marriage, the bearing of children, co-creators with God in reproduction. These are amazing physical attributes that God has given us and, and very important function. But we also have spiritual capacity, and we've, uh, we've rehearsed this a bit in this series. 
we reminded ourselves that the Bible teaches that we are physically, our bodies are actually indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God lives inside of us. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's an amazing, an amazing reality. We experience through the sacraments of baptism. We baptize our bodies. We ingest into our bodies the symbolic elements of the body and blood of Jesus in Holy Communion. Pope John Paul II actually convincingly taught that our bodies are a means of grace. We hear the truth of God with our ears. We read it with our eyes. We confess it with our lips. The, the, the greatest example of the fact that God cares about our bodies and, and considers them sacred is that Jesus took a body when he came to the earth. And so we understand this is essential and important. And not only do we have physical capacity, but we have spiritual capacity in our bodies. That's why, that's why Jesus came in the incarnation. Incarnation is just a fancy word that means in the flesh, in concarne, uh, in flesh. Uh, John 1.14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus took a body. Colossians 1.19 says, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Colossians 2.9, in Christ, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. Now, why is that important? Therefore, it's important, and you need to hear this. This is a very important theological statement. The human body, then, is designed to be the recipient of divine fullness. I want you to think about that. God believes in bodies. He has designed us for both function and spiritual capacity. All the means of grace comes through our bodies. God, theology touches anthropology through our bodies. God has divine fulfillment in mind for us. God has given us bodies. He celebrates our bodies. He loves our bodies. He has eternal plans for our bodies. So thank God we have a body. And thank God that he has given us the capacity we have. Now with that in mind, let me teach you something that perhaps you've not learned till now. In the first century, right after Jesus was on the earth and the first disciples, first Christians were in the world, there was a group of people that became labeled the Gnostics. They got this label not because they called themselves Gnostics, but because they believed they had special knowledge. They had special insight into ultimate reality. And Gnosis, the, the, the framework for our word knowledge, the root for that, uh, became then the foundation of how we describe these folks with this worldview, this philosophy. We called them Gnostics. And Gnosticism began to emerge. We're not sure where it emerged in history, but it was, it was strong and getting traction in the first century and beyond. Here's what the Gnostics taught. Now listen to this carefully. They taught, with their special knowledge, that the body, the human body, the physical body, is evil and can't be trusted. The body's a trap, which must be overcome so you can release the true light, the real you, which is within. So the physical world was, was in suspect and the physical body was evil and irredeemable. So the Gnostics practiced two basic forms with their bodies. One is they just indulged their bodies in any way they could conceive of. Because the body's not important, the body doesn't matter, the only thing that's important is what's inside of you, the real you within you that's trapped in your body and your body's evil because of it. So you can just treat your body any way you want, indulge it in any practice you can imagine. The other, the other extreme that the Gnostics embraced was a life of asceticism. 
so that they, they denied themselves and suppressed the flesh because it's evil and, and, uh, and worthless. You see this thread of Gnostic, Gnostic teaching and philosophy in the religions of Hinduism and Buddhism. A little bit different, but it's the same, it's the same error. It's the same wrong worldview. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the highest level of Buddhism, for example, is to eliminate all your bodily desires. So, you know, these monks living in these monasteries on a, on a hill uh, in Asia, these are, these are guys trying to suppress, completely suppress all their human desires. Why you want to live that way, I don't know. But it's, it's, it's chasing something that's different from God's original design and intent for the human body. So what we are seeing today is a resurfacing of a lack of confidence in the human body. This is classic Gnosticism. It's not the first time in history it's, it's emerged, and it won't be the last time. But it's clearly emergent in our culture and the Western cultures right now. Now let me remind you of three biblical truths that are repeated throughout the Bible. I want to put these on the screen. So guys, just put that up and leave it up. Here's the first one. Your heart is deceitful. This is what the Bible teaches from front to back. Your heart is deceitful. In fact, there's extreme language used around it. Your heart is deceitful above all else. Desperately wicked. Cannot be trusted. And, and, and so, the, so the Bible points us back to the need to depend with our emotions and our feelings on God. The wisest man who's ever lived, Solomon, said it this way. Some of you can quote these verses from Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. So place your, your heart's incl inclinations in trusting confidence in God. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. And so the Bible teaches your heart is deceitful. Second, that your mind needs renewing. Apostle Paul in Romans said it this way. He said, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed. Be different than the world. How do you do that? By the renewing of your mind. And, of course, you renew your mind by thinking the thoughts of God, by understanding the words of God. And the Apostle Paul actually later in, in one of the epistles said that we can have the mind of Christ, thinking the thoughts of Jesus. So that, that's pretty cool. But, but the point is that our mind needs renewing. The world fleshes our minds with all kinds of false information. And so our minds have to be renewed. Then the third biblical truth that's repeated throughout the Scripture is that your body is trustworthy. You've been fearfully and wonderfully made, the psalmist wrote. And, and so God reminds us that he has purpose in mind, he has design in mind for the human body. And the body is something that is stable and trustworthy. In the first century, as I mentioned, the Gnostics come, came along and they said, okay, the body's evil. The real you's in you, not in your body. And so why would a loving God send his own son into the world and take a body? And so the Gnostics pushed against Christianity and said Christianity can't be true because they believe their God came in a body because they were so opposed to the physical world. And so they said Jesus is only a spirit. He's not in a body. And if Jesus had influence in the world, it's because of a spiritual influence and not a physical one. And so the early church had to push against this myth, this heresy, this false teaching. And so John the Apostle, apparently he got ticked off one day, and this is what he wrote in 1 John 4. He said, if anybody says Christ has not come in the flesh, in other words, didn't have a body, let him be accursed. He's of the Antichrist. Well, you know, that's pretty strong. 
That's a pretty strong rebuke. And so the early church had to, had to carve out the, the insistence that God came to the world and revealed himself in the incarnation when Jesus took a body and revealed himself to the world. Now, look in contrast now to what the Bible teaches, which I've just described, to what we find in current culture, the phrases and practices in current culture. And here are these three things. Here's what the world tells us. Number one, the heart must always be followed. The heart must always be followed. How many times do we hear this? How many times a day is some talking head, some personality on some, on some platform saying to us, listen, you got to trust your heart. you got to follow your heart. you got to go with your instincts. You, get, you can trust your heart. Just, just listen to your own heart and you'll know what to do. Mm-mm. No. Now that's what the world teaches. And that's how the world is practicing. But it's not smart. It's not wise. It's not good. So the heart must always be followed, the world says. Number two, your mind is always clear. Your mind is always clear. Not your mind needs renewing, but your mind is clear. So what we have is postmodernism. Postmodernism came on the scene here some number of years ago. And here's the basic definition of postmodernism, that there are no absolutes. There is no absolutely true thing in, in absolutely every situation. So absolute truth doesn't exist in the world. We're postmodern. In 2016, Webster's Dictionary did what they always do every year, and they produced a word or a phrase that is a new word or phrase being commonly used in the vernacular. And the word that they came up with in 2016, the phrase of the year, was post-truth. Postmodern says there are no absolutes. Post-truth is defined by saying no matter what the facts say, no matter what is scientifically provable, no matter what the facts are, what I think and what I feel is more important than the facts. So we live in a post-truth world where people are actually going through the world saying, please don't confuse me by the facts because what I think is what's most important and what I feel is what's actually true. So, so your mind is always clear. That's what the culture teaches. Then the third thing is your body is untrustworthy. Now we're back to the Gnostic, the Gnostic heresy, the Gnostic myth. You can't trust the body. So the culture, listen, let me summarize. The culture has exactly reversed the plain teaching of the scripture and the biblical vision, completely inverted it. So now we have, we have as a predictable Um, symbol of this new worldview, this new philosophy that has emerged in our culture, we have things like gender reassignment. You might be a woman trapped in a man's body. Can't trust your body. You might be a woman trapped in a man's body. You might be a man trapped in a woman's body. What's the message? You cannot trust your body. You can trust your heart. You can trust your mind. You can trust your emotions, but there are no ethical boundaries inherent in today's culture around God's creation, best design. He made them male and female. So sex is no longer binary, meaning there's two sexes, male and female. Sex is malleable. Sex is variable. Sex is fluid. Let me me say a word about a subject that we don't do very well with in our culture. And the subject is mental illness. 
If I walk up to you and say, you know, the doctor just told me I have heart disease. What I would engender from you if I said that to you is I would engender your sympathy. Because you would go, oh, heart, oh, sorry to hear that. Are you seeing a cardiologist? I mean, there, there are medicines for that that can help you. There are lifestyle changes you can do. You can live a long, normal life uh, and manage that. Are you getting the help you need? Because it would be empathetic. Or if you, if you said to someone, you know, I've just been diagnosed with diabetes, and, and, and you say, oh, well, you know, there are medicines, there are, life, there, there are treatments for that. You can get better. If someone, on the other hand, walks up to you and says, you know, I've just been diagnosed with mental illness, there's a stigma attached to that in our culture. You know it's true. I'm not sure where it comes from. I'm sure someone could explain it. But it's there, and we need to do better with people with mental illness. Why is it okay for your heart to be diseased or your liver to be diseased or your kidneys to not function properly and your mind not be in the same category? So mental illness is simply when your brain's not working right. It's out of balance. The chemicals are out of whack. Something's not working well, and so it creates emotions that are incoherent or thought patterns that don't connect. And, and so people suffer from mental illness. And it's a growing issue in our culture, in our world. And so as the people of faith, just like all conditions that we find people in, we want to be sympathetic and we want to be loving and accepting and helpful to people. So here's my, here's my admonition and here's my invitation to you. The next time you hear that someone is suffering from mental illness, be more sympathetic to that. Because people are, are hurting and suffering. So just nod your head like you're going to try harder to, do, to, be, more, to, more, to be more loving and, and accepting of people who struggle with this category. Because it's just like any other organ. You know, I have connective, I have connective tissue disorder, and, you know, and I get stiff and sore all the time. Hey, that sounds, that sounds kind of rough. I hope you're getting help for that. It's... it's it's just the same category. We want to we be accepting of people. I also want to say this. With particular reference to folks who suffer from gender confusion, gender dysphoria, I, I have no way of comprehending the unique and difficult challenge that that must be in life. I, I, I just I can't imagine the confusion that comes with that, the fear, the, the sense of isolation, how troubled internally you would have to become. I, I don't know. I, and I confess my naivete toward that experience. It's not my personal experience. I, I don't have anyone in my immediate family with that experience. I don't have anyone really close to me in my life with that experience. Now, I know people who, who have this, this struggle, but they're not close to me. And, and so I'm just, I'm just honestly sharing with you that it's complicated, I assume it's complex, it's difficult, and it's unimaginably hard to deal with and manage. I, so I'm just, I'm just admitting that to you. Having said that now, I want to quote a Dr. Michelle Cretella. She's a medical doctor, president of the American College of Pediatricians. And this is what Dr. Cretella said. And I quote, her statement makes sense to me. She said, transgenderism holds that people can be born into the wrong body. I would like to submit to you that it is simply not true. Human sexuality is binary. In other words, she argues that we are male and female. We know this because in nature, reproduction is the rule. 
With very rare exceptions, all the other species on the planet have figured this out. So the males and females in virtually every other species find each other for reproduction. Only the most intelligent of all the earthly species seem to be confused about this. Makes you wonder. Nevertheless, all of us will agree that in order to reproduce, you need a man and a woman. Women are the XX in their chromosome structure, and men are the XY chromosome. These are genetic markers for female and male, respectively. So the sexes are binary, and it's self-evident. If someone identifies as transgender, that is not a problem in their body. So if there is confusion, the issues of identity must originate in the mind or a person's thoughts and their feelings or their emotions. Thoughts and emotions are not hardwired like our bodies are. So our thoughts and emotions may be factually correct or factually wrong. The definition of a delusion is a fixed false belief. So if I persistently and consistently insist that I am Hillary Clinton or persistently and consistently insist that I'm Abraham Lincoln or an amputee who's trapped in a normal body, then I'm experiencing a delusion. In fact, there are people who believe they are amputees who are trapped in a normal body. They are properly diagnosed as having, quote, body identity integrity disorder. Such persons often wish to cut off an arm or a leg to become consistent with the way they think or feel. And when such persons wish to do this, they are labeled mentally ill. On the other hand, if you wish to cut off your female breasts or your male genitalia, you are described as transgender and not suffering from a mental illness. Individuals with disorders of sex development, gender confusion, or gender dysphoria are being used as pawns in the fight to dispel mental illness. There is no such thing as a civil right to mental illness. But that is exactly what today's culture is attempting to enforce on all of us who know better. Now remember the contrast from the biblical worldview, God's original intent and design, and the culture. The Bible clearly teaches that your heart is deceitful. Culture clearly insists that the heart must always be followed. The Bible teaches your mind needs renewing. The culture says your mind is always clear. The Bible teaches your body is trustworthy. Hardwired, binary, male and female. He made them male and female. And the culture says your body cannot be trusted. Now what you should know about the original Gnostic heresy from the first century to the fourth century this philosophy got traction and the church had to resist it, resist it, resist it because they were disclaiming that Jesus was incarnate, that he had actually taken a body in the world. And so the Council of Chalcedon was called in 451 AD explicitly to deal with this question of whether or not Jesus came in the flesh. And the Council of Chalcedon in 451 concluded, yes, Jesus was incarnate. He took a body and came to the earth. This is also the council where the Nicene Creed was ratified. The Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed are the two fundamental Christian creeds in the world that every Christian everywhere for all time agree on the assertions. And the Nicene Creed includes in its phraseology, and on the third day Jesus rose from the dead and took again his body. And so we have this assertion 
And this is what Christians believe in the incarnation of Jesus. And it took 400 years for the church to sort that out and to make that clear for, 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 for all time. And so 400 years worth of wrestling with this truth. And you say, well, how long is it going to take this time? And my answer is, it doesn't matter. It took the early church 400 years to come to that conclusion, and it may take us another 400 years. But here's the good news. The church of Jesus Christ has all the time in the world. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus said that my church is immutable. It is unshakable. We are part of a kingdom that will never end. What God has started in the person of Jesus Christ is never going to stop. And so whether it takes a little bit of time or a lot of earthly time matters nothing to us because as the people of faith, we have all the time in the world, and I can assure you, truth will prevail. Now, if I've done anything to convince you that human sexuality is binary, that there are men and women, this is God's original design, then the second point may become relevant, and that is the human body and the two genders. And I want to talk about that just briefly. Two genders. There are two philosophies that are loose in the world today. One of them is called egalitarianism. It's just a fancy word that means that people are equal, they deserve equal rights, and they deserve equal opportunity. I happen to think that egalitarianism fits perfectly into the biblical vision, the biblical model, because everyone is equal. Everyone has equal rights. Everyone should have equal opportunity, men and women, no matter your status. I'm an egalitarian, and I think the Bible teaches it clearly. There's a second philosophy loose in our world today, and it's called complementary, complementarianism. And that's just a fancy way of saying combining the genders in such a way as to enhance or emphasize the qualities of each so that men and women, as the Bible teaches, are better together and we complement one another. Now, these issues of egalitarianism and complementarianism manifest themselves in our culture in all kinds of ways, like how do you define marriage? What is headship? What does submission mean? What's ordination? What's leadership? What's role, role uh, uh, activities? And I think both of these philosophies play out perfectly in a biblical worldview. But the song of our culture, as I've mentioned in weeks prior, the song of our culture right now is toward autonomous solitude, driving men and women apart, the genders at war with each other, and each grasping for power and dominion over the other. You know, in the last few weeks in our political culture, you know, the conclusion you might draw is that all men are perpetrators and all women are victims. And if, and if, you're, if you're leaning into that, Please stop. Don't do that. The reason you want to do that is because it's, it's not true. I mean, it's just not true. And it only produces more shame and guilt and fear. And it drives the genders further apart, more disjointed, more suspicious of each other. Whereas the divine plan and agenda and purpose of God is to bring men and women together. God says to us, men and women are better together. We're better together. That's God's original intent. So the greater vision of the new creation, we realize that it comes only through giving ourselves and dying for one another and being mutually submitted so that I prefer the other person in covenant relationship and I honor that person and I look to their best interest. And so in the self-giving, 
self-sacrificial, self-donation of covenant relationship as God has ordered it, it is in that context that marriage then looks appealing. It's in that context that raising a family looks doable and appealing and a real blessing. And I just want to say a word to those of you who have decided to follow Jesus in your life and you were from a home where your parents didn't give you what you needed. And maybe they not only didn't give you what you needed, they hurt you. And they were actually evil toward one another and toward you. And you, at some point in your life, you came to a crossroads moment and you decided to say yes to God's best plan for your life and you invited Jesus Christ to be the transforming agent for your life and your future. And you decided when you got married that your covenant spouse was going to be a man or a woman that you loved and you loved unconditionally and that you lived in covenant with for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do you part. And you, on top of that, you decided intentionally, you made this choice that you were going to raise your children different than the way you were raised. You may not have gotten what you needed. In fact, you may have been damaged and wounded by your own parents. But you decided that you were going to be a great blessing to your own children and that you've said the words, I love you, I'm proud of you, You've got what it takes. You can be anything in the world you want to be. You're going to turn out great. I'm for you, and God loves you and has a great plan for your life. And you've not only used those words, but you have given your life in an intentional way to see your children understand that they have enormous potential in the God-designed plan for their life, and you've done well with that. And I just want you to know I've noticed. I know a lot of your stories, and I'm inspired by you, and I appreciate you because you represent the higher standard. The expectation of God. Nobody's perfect, but you're giving it a good shot, and you're living in a God-honoring way, and I want you to know that it matters, and, you, and, you, and your witness to the world matters. So God bless you. I'm proud of you. Now, let me get to this last point. You might want to write this down. Again, this is identifying with Jesus. The human body will be resurrected. <laughs> the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 argues that the bodily resurrection of Jesus is the first fruit of bodily resurrection. We are connected to Jesus at the point of resurrection. He is the firstborn of the resurrection, and we are going to be next. Jesus died, and on the third day when he rose from the dead, he took again his body. And so Jesus now lives in this glorified body. It's an immortal body. The apostle wrote, 1 Corinthians 15, that, that at the resurrection, our mortality shall be changed to immortality. That the temporal shall be changed to eternal. How many of you in the room today are in touch with the mortality of your own physical body? Do you feel it? Yeah, I feel it. Oh, how I feel it. Some of, some of you are feeling it right now. I mean, I, I, I'm looking at you. You know, you see me, but I see all of you. <laughs> Some of you can't even hold your head up anymore. It's really mortal of you. It's okay because we're all going to be resurrected. In eternity, we're not going to be flitting around in some disembodied spiritual state. We're going to have bodies resurrected, immortalized. Yeah, yeah. So God has great plans for our body. And this is why the church must be attentive not only to the spiritual condition of those he calls to reach, but he also calls us to attend to the physical condition of those suffering in the world. So it's easy to make this application when you respect the incarnation of Jesus 
and the future resurrection of his church. That's why we support ministries like Muncie Mission or Christian Ministries or Blood and Fire or the thousands and thousands of dollars that we dispense to meet basic physical needs of people in our own community out of our office every year. This is why for 20 years and plus now, we have done humanitarian aid activities in Kazakhstan. Uh, just last year, we gave, we gave our, our development center in the city of Taraz, and you've heard me say this, this is not hype, it was the nicest building in the whole city. We bought it, we renovated it, you paid for all of that, and we had this phenomenal building development center, the nicest building in the 2,000-year history of the city of Taraz, Kazakhstan. And last year, we gave it to a medical doctor, an American medical doctor, who has opened a medical clinic in our building so that state-of-the-art medicine is now available to our loved ones, our Kazakh friends, in Taraz. It's an amazing thing. There's a, den there's a dentist's office in there. There's an OBGYN clinic in there. There's a special needs clinic. In and that's all because of you. You all did that. Now, why this approach? Why do this? Because there are spirits that are deadened by sin and hopeless who need the resurrection power of Jesus, and there are bodies in our world that are suffering. Failing to care for bodies is failing to take the incarnation seriously. So therefore, Syrian refugees must receive care. Women caught in human trafficking must be liberated. Why we feed hungry bodies? Because it's the gospel. Why do we clothe people who are naked? Because it's the Christian thing to do. Because God became flesh in Jesus Christ. It is not ancillary to the gospel. It is central to the gospel because God became flesh in Jesus Christ. It is central. We don't do it because it might convince someone to say yes to Jesus. We do it as a first line of meaningful expression because we understand God's original intent and design for the human body, which is precious to him even though the refugee never comes to faith in Christ or even resents the care we offer or even hates us still, we will serve them because this is what Christians do. God became flesh in Jesus Christ to love the world unconditionally. One more statement. Here it is, and we're done. There are a thousand ways that our contemporary world disincarnates the body from human experience, human relationships, human sexuality but the gospel of Jesus Christ overturns them all. We have a blessed hope, my friends. Once perceived in the person of Jesus Christ, when he took a body, put on an earth suit, and came to this world to reveal the unconditional love of God and his great affection for us, ultimately sacrificing that body in a horrific death to satisfy the penalty of the sins of every person in the world, and so the incarnation matters to us. And on the third day after his death, he rose from the dead and took again that body. And that resurrection gives confident hope to all of us that one day we too will be resurrected to an eternal life and enjoy this great marriage, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where all of us will recognize the grandness of God and his glory extended to us. So thanks be to God for our bodies and the great plans that God has for those bodies. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for your amazing grace toward us. We are so thankful that you've given us bodies and given our bodies such meaning and significance, dignity and hope. So help us, O oh God, to live in our bodies in a way that 
issues forth in covenant and sacredness and holiness. Help us, Lord, to live in ways that honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen.